The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for, Cain, for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. May pray for us. Lord, these are heavy words. And yet there's a little cane in each of us. And we ask that you'd root it out. And Lord, help us to see Jesus, to see our great need for him, and how this text points us to him. We ask in his name. Amen. I want us to consider three things. There's a lot of questions that are in this text. Isn't it interesting how God comes to us with questions? Three big ones. Why are you angry? Where is Abel, your brother? What have you done? Verses 1 to 7, why are you angry? Verses 8 and 9, where's your brother? And verse 10, what have you done? We got a why, a where, and a what. Well, what we see here in this storyline of the Bible, where are we? You know, we're in this story where, where Adam and Eve are made to rule over the creation. They're commanded to be fruitful and multiplied. They're image bearers of God. They have dominion as daughters and sons of the king. Literally, they are prince and princess. Image bearers to have dominion over the creation. But they believed they were wiser than God. They could choose for themselves what was right and what was wrong. They could decide for themselves, and they sided with the serpent. They rejected God's interpretation and, and God's interpretation of the world for themselves. They rejected his words. They chose the serpent's wor words, and when they do, when they did that, the world of Eden and the world of paradise disappeared. It comes to an immediate end, and they are sent out of Eden and enter into this world of conflict, chaos, pain, suffering, sorrow, and sin, we see, is, is a violation of shalom. It's shalom-breaking. That's what Cornelius Planning calls it in his book. Not, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And we think we can keep our world together and have sin right in the middle of it. And what we see throughout the Bible is it don't work. And it's going to get worse. So Adam and Eve have more children after Cain and Abel. But Cain and Abel are the first children naturally born. 
Now, Eve takes God's promises, he takes God, she takes God's promise so seriously. Remember God said to the serpent that one's gonna come from the seed of the woman that's gonna crush your head. You'll bruise his heel. One's coming, it's gonna crush the serpent's head. Well, Eve takes that so seriously that she, that she thinks this firstborn son, he's gonna be the serpent head crusher. So she names him Cain. And Cain means, I have gotten him, with a little help from the Lord. <laughs> it's mainly me, but there's a little help from the Lord. His name means, I've gotten him, or I've acquired my possession, or basically, here he is. That's really what it means. Here am I, here he is. And so she thinks that she has given birth to the one who will deliver her from the serpent and will crush the serpent. Here he is. For you theologians out there, we would say, Eve hasn't over-realized eschatology. Uh, she, there's no not yet in her theology. It's all already here. And that always leads to problems when we think that there's so much of the kingdom of God is now when so much of it is still not yet. And so she has all her eggs in this one basket of Cain. Here he is, my possession. I've gotten him. And so it's so obvious she names her second child Abel, which in Hebrew... You put a little H sound over the A, and the B's are pronounced with a V, and so it would be Hevel. And Hevel uh, is this Hebrew word that is the beginning of Ecclesiastes. And how does Ecclesiastes begin? Meaninglessness, or meaningless, or vanity of vanities. It's the word Abel. It's the word Hevel. It means uh, meaningless, vanity, vapor, fleeting. And little did she know how fleeting Abel's life would be. It was just a vapor who would be crushed by her firstborn son. Here he is, the serpent crusher, not hardly. You see, we have a, instantly we have a problem as they're both worshipers. You, so, you know, Cain and Abel, they both went to Sunday school. They both went to church. Uh, you know, that's what um, other preachers have said. I think it's funny. I mean, it... it, it Cain was a religious guy and so was Abel. And they both bring an offering to the Lord. One is accepted, one is rejected. And we read in Hebrews this morning, one of the scripture readings was that we see the difference is that Abel's offered his sacrifice by faith. He offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so we can surmise that Cain's sacrifice wasn't offered in faith. And so Abel brought of the firstborn of the flock and of the fat portions. Do you see that in verse 4? That means he gave God his best. He gave God the choice pick of the flock. He offered it to God. God is worthy of a big sacrifice. He gives him the best. But Cain's worship, as Bruce Waltke puts it, was tokenism. He didn't give God his best. He just gave him something. Here, God, here's something for you. But he isn't thankful to God. He really wants God to thank him. He wants to, to, to come to God on his terms, whereas Abel wants to come to God on God's terms. And so Cain comes to God as a religious guy, but he's not grateful. He thinks that God owes him. 
And God should be thankful that I've come with something rather than nothing because most people aren't coming with anything. But at least I'm coming with something, God. You should be happy with that. Cain brought some of the fruits or an offering of the fruits. It was half-hearted. And Walkie again says, he says, Cain's first first fails at the altar, and because he fails at the altar, he fails in the field. And because he fails in his theology, he's going to fail in his ethics. And the idea is this. Horizontal problems that are going to surface between Cain and Abel are always vertical problems first. What causes quarrels and fights among you? What's the answer James give? gives? Is it not this, that your lusts are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. Our problems are vertical problems first, but they lead to horizontal problems. Tim Keller from New York City says, Canes are always mad at God, always feeling like they're getting a raw deal. They always feel like God isn't really being fair, always. They don't see themselves as terrible sinners. Therefore, when they see an Abel who's sure that God loves them, Canes hate that. They think, you must be arrogant. You must think you're perfect. But of course, Canes are always reading Abel's through their own grid. But Abel's are so different. Abel's aren't standing on their dignity. They're not always worried about what they look like anymore. Abel's are people who no longer worry. They're no longer standing in their own dignity. They no longer worry about what they look like. There's two different complete paradigms of how they come to God. But when Cain's offering is rejected, God says to Cain, he comes to him in tenderness to make this right. He says the Lord had, had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And then it says this, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. So notice this, this playing of words of the face falling. His face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will there not be a lifting of your face is literally what it, what it says. Will there not be a lifting up? He comes to him and says, you got to do what's right. You can restore this firstborn status. He's feeling like he's lost the firstborn status. We can restore that. We can restore that, Cain. And he comes to him in gentleness and he's trying to restore him. But he's saying, look, sin is couching crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. But twice we have reference to Cain's faces falling. He's depressed. He's sulking, pouting, full of self-pity. Why is this a big deal? Well, self-pity is a scary, fertile ground for sin. Tim Keller has many sermons on this Cain and Abel, but one of them, he says, he says this, he says, why could the Nazis eventually do the things they did? Little sins only become huge sins if they're planted in self-pity. Self-pity never looks, never ever looks like anything big. In fact, when I say self-pity, you don't, you don't gasp, you don't get upset about self-pity, but you ought to. Why do you think the Nazis could do what they did? Because they wallowed in self-pity for 20 years as victims. They felt like victims. If you feel like a victim all the time and you fantasize about how much better it would be if we could get out of here and did this and did that, self-pity will poison your whole life. It'll make every other sin huge. You see, self-pity is a scary thing. The second dynamic about sin here is even scarier, is how sin is described. It's crouching 
at your door. Sin is being described as a predator, and we are the prey. It's like the lady who was sleeping with the boa constrictor. You remember that story? The lady was sleeping, she had this boa constrictor, and the thing would stretch itself out to see if, and, she, and, and it wasn't eating. So she took the boa constrictor to the vet, and she was explaining how this, this boa constrictor was laying itself out lengthwise right next to her at night, and it wasn't eating for, for it was a long time. And the vet finally explained, well, that this snake is, is saving itself for a huge meal. And the reason it's measuring itself out is to see if it can fit you. She was literally sleeping with the enemy. You see, that's what sin's described as. It's like a cheetah. It's a leopard. It's crouching down, and it's sneaking up on you, and you're the gazelle. And you're just thinking, oh, I need to just be casual about sin. I need to be cool with it. And it's crouching, secretly hiding with a power that it's not static, it's dynamic. It wants to have you. You've got to take sin seriously. One of the scary things in these little pamphlets we were reading, we, you know, with this um, uh, grace group that came in, they've given us these pamphlets to read about predators. And you remember one of the things that we learned about these predators, it's never by accident. They're always intentional. And one of the quotes that Diane Lamberg had in there that just was striking to me, she said, the most potent recipe for violence is a favorable view of oneself that is disputed or undermined by someone else. In short, it's threatened egotism. She goes on to say that people are inclined to do violence or evil when another contradicts their inflated view of themselves. When are you most vulnerable to do something really stupid? Threatened egotism. An inflated view of ourselves and somebody challenges our self-righteousness and actually calls us self-righteous. Bombs go off. Watch out. You say, but what? it's not me. I have a grudge, but it's a small grudge. I have a little anger, but it's not a problem. It only manifests itself once in a while with explosions. I have a little lust problem, but I don't let it get out of control. I'm a binge eater, but it's only on occasion. I have a drinking problem, but only sometimes. I'm not anxious all the time, just when stressful things are happening. I don't have a problem with pride, there's a lot more prideful people than me out there. I don't have a problem with forgiveness. They just don't deserve to be forgiven. I have some bitterness, but it's not that bad. I don't wish them ill. I just pretend they don't exist. They're dead to me. And that's what happened to Abel. He was dead to Cain. You see, it starts off with something just small. C.S. Lewis has this classic scene in The Great Divorce, how we don't take sin seriously. We don't want to do what Jesus said that we have to do. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Meaning, take radical measures to deal with sin to escape hell and gain heaven. And he describes lust as this little red lizard on the shoulder. And if you've read this dialogue, you're, you're taken in with it. I'm going to read it to you. And 
you know, keep in mind that there, it's, a, it's fiction, and it's this ghost that are going up to, to heaven, and there's this dialogue, and it goes like this. Would you like me to make him quiet, this little red lizard of lust? Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit and angel? As I now understood, of, of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Ah, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, says the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant you to bother with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because here, well, it, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's, there's time to discuss that later. There's no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really don't bother. Look, it's going to go to sleep on its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thank you so very much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I, I think, I'll think over what you said carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now. But as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be silly to do it now. I'll be in good, hope, good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back, you're, you're, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you think I'm a coward, but it, it isn't that, really it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor and I'll come back at first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering me. How can I let you tear at me to pieces? If I wanted to, you to help me, why didn't you just kill the damn thing without asking me before I knew? It would be all over by now if you had. I can't kill it against your will. It's impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed in on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that I could even hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be a sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I'll admit sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost? I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right. It might be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may? Damn and blast you, go on, can't you? Get it over, do what you, do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but, but ended whimpering, God help me, God help me. And next moment, the, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I had never heard on earth. The burning one closed with crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed and flung it, broke, broken back on the turf. And then the story goes on that up mounts this stallion and they ride off into the sunset. And it's this glorious picture of finally dealing with sin. But you could see, just keep trying to justify it and justify it. Let's do the gradual thing and let's deal with it later. Let's deal with it later. Mortification of sin. 
is key. Sin is crouching. It is alive. John Owen, in his classic book on mortification of sin, 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 sin always aims at the uttermost, at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it will go out of its utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. Men may come to, to that Men may come to that. The sin may not be heard speaking a scandalous word in their hearts that is provoking to any great sin with scandal in its mouth. Yet every rise of lust might have its course would come to the height of villainy. It's like the grave that is never satisfied. And so John Owen in this classic work says that we have to mortify sin. Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from it, from this work. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. The vigor and the power and the comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. There is not a day, but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon. And it will be so while we live in this world. While sin, when sin lets us alone, we can let it alone. But his sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet. Sin is lurking. It hides. So we must hate sin as sin, not only as galling or disquieting, but a sense of the love of Christ and the cross lies at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. And so there's this element that we don't really understand our hearts. There's something scary about Genesis 4. It's like the Bilbo Baggins moment in The Lord of the Rings where he looked at that ring one last time and went, ah! And you get this feeling of a monster. And some of these movies try to portray this to us, like the, the Silence of the Lambs or the movie Seven. These movies try to show us that, no, no, I really, I'm just a normal person and I can be that evil. But no, you're trying to label me as something that, that I'm a crazy person. I'm not crazy, I'm just evil, but you can't deal with that. Because evil is far worse than we ever imagined it to be. Where do you get the most accurate portrayal about the heart of sin than in the Bible? It tells us of how bad it is and how much we need a Messiah, how much we need a Savior. Cornelius Planning will put it like this. He says the sobering fact of reform is that we constantly need reforming and rescuers need rescue and amendments need amendment and repentant sinners need to repent even of some dimension of their repentance such as the pride and their humility that has driven them to their needs. Evil contaminates every scalpel designed to remove it. We are a set of walking contradictions. Our inner lives are not partitioned like day and night with pure light on one side and total darkness on the other. Mostly our souls are shadowed places. We live at the border where our dark side blocks our light and throws a shadow over in our interior places. We can't always tell where the light ends and the shadow begins and where the shadow ends and the darkness begins. And so we have to be mortifying sin, putting it to death. Romans 8 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are not debtors. We're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. That didn't work for Cain, did it? You see, Cain was being tenderly drawn in by the Lord to fight this sin. Its desire is for you and you must rule over it. 
And some manuscripts actually have a little, if you see a little footnote in your Bible, and it says that, that Cain spoke to his brother. He actually, some manuscripts said, he said, let's go out into the field. And if that really is in the text, I'm not a prosecuting attorney, but that sounds like premeditated first degree murder to me. Deliberate, well thought out, intentional. Come with me into the field. And God comes along and then he says, where's Abel? Where's your brother? God knows where Abel is, but he's trying to lead Cain to repentance. But Cain doesn't repent. He only hardens his heart even more and he lies. We have the first big lie of the Bible. I don't know. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Really? He's shrugging off all responsibility as an image bearer in rebellion and saying, that's not my job. And yet we know that the Bible's emphasis to us is we are a brother's keeper. We are a sister's keeper. And yet he says, that's not my job. And just like Adam who said, well, the woman you gave me, woman you gave me, it's really your fault, God. He's saying, am I my brother's keeper? That's your job. Where were you, God? If you're so good, wise, and sovereign, you should have been looking out for him. Aren't you his keeper? That's really what he's saying to God. It's really your fault. And God says, what have you done? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood was crying out justice. The land is cursed. Abel was the first martyr. His own self-righteous, self-pitying brother. Jesus, the true and better Abel, was also killed by his own people who were self-righteous and full of envy. And we're told in Hebrews, as the call to worship came this morning, that Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, we come to him and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. There's a better word that's speaking this morning. And notice how it's present tense. See that you don't refuse him who is speaking. He's speaking right now. His blood is speaking right now. And Jesus' blood is not crying out for justice because justice was atoned for when his blood dripped to the ground at the cross. And the true and better Abel, whose blood still speaks, now cries out, don't let that ransom sinner die. It's crying out mercy. It's crying out forgiveness. And so we need to look at Genesis 4.10 and see Jesus. We say, what have you done? What have you done, Lord? The voice of my brother's blood now is crying out. It's crying out, don't let that ransom sinner die. It's crying out that he loves me. And so we can come. We can come to God. We can come to him. That's where sin is dealt with. One of my hymns that I really love is this old hymn called Come Boldly to the Throne of Grace that Red Mountain put it to music. It goes like this. And hear this. Come boldly to the throne of grace. You wretched sinners, come. Lay your load at Jesus' feet and plead what he has done. 
How can I come, some soul may say. I'm lame and cannot walk. My, my guilt and sin have stopped my mouth. I sigh but dare not talk. Come boldly to the throne of grace, though blind, though lost and blind and lame. Jehovah is the sinner's friend and ever was the same. He makes the dead to hear his voice. He makes the blind to see. The sinner lost he came to see, to save and set the prisoner free. Come boldly to the throne of grace, for Jesus fills the throne, and those he kills he makes alive. He hears the sire groan. Poor bankrupt souls who feel and know the hell of sin within, come boldly to the throne of grace. The Lord will take you in. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Let's pray. Lord, we are in great need of you, for there is a hell of sin within. We thank you that you came to crush the devil, to destroy the works of the devil, to dethrone the power of sin. We thank you that at the cross, you've done so. So now you'd ask us, Lord, to come live in light of that, Help us to see who we are now as redeemed children of God, dearly loved. May we put on tenderness, compassion, and kindness. Fill us with the fruits of your spirit as your spirit reminds us of Jesus and what he's done. May we be different and may we no longer treat people according to the flesh. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.